Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Matthias, and we are sitting with a BU alum, Terry Tanielian, who uh, currently works uh, at Rancorp doing work on behavioral health. Um, so we're really pleased to get the opportunity to speak with her about her research, uh, her career, um, and you know, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So could, could you tell us a little bit about um, Item 1 Rancorp um, and what you do at Rancorp? Sure. Yeah. The Rand Corporation is a nonprofit research organization. We were founded in 1948 as an independent think tank to really advise, at that time, um, the United States Department of Defense about the future of the air um, force and the future of our air capabilities. And so it was from some of that research and development, we were called Project Rand, which stood for research and development, to kind of think through what should our air capabilities be in the United States. And Mm -hmm. so out of that, the Air Force was born and a more formalized relationship began. But we were an independent entity designed to do um, objective research that could inform solutions to difficult, complex challenges. And so over time, our issues really expanded across the spectrum. And now we have nine different business divisions that focus on just about any pressing policy issue Mm -hmm. that you can imagine. Uh, we are a nonprofit entity, and so all of our work is sponsored by either a grantor, which provides funding to us to kind of pursue various different research projects, or contracts where we're responding to opportunities. Our biggest funder is the United States government, but we also do work for private foundations, um, corporations, as well as um, other benefactors. But everything is sponsor-driven and has to be uh, funded, if you will. But RAND, um, you know, really prides itself on its quality um, and its objectivity. Right. And our transparency, public policy mission, is that our work will be in the public domain. Mm-hmm. And so often that means we will not take on some projects because of restrictive publication policies. Right. That's a, that's interesting. So yeah. so within that within that within that context, what? What is it that you do at Rancorp? So I'm currently a senior behavioral scientist. So my background is as a trained research psychologist, and I get to conduct research on topics that are of interest to me and where my expertise can be value added. So I tend to work at the intersection of health and national security. Mm -hmm. So I bring my background in behavioral health, healthcare, health policy, to issues that uh, we are faced in the national security environment and now in homeland defense. So when I first joined RAND, um, you know, I started getting exposed to the Department of Defense and to that enterprise to kind of bring those expertise Mm -hmm. into that environment. So, you know, in the Pardee School at at BU right now, we talk a lot, you know, if we're talking about careers, a lot of us are interested in this sort of work, right, going to RAND and stuff like that. But my, my friends in the psychology department don't often talk about this as a career opportunity. How did you find your way into this sort of work, um, leaving BU? Sure. Well, once I left BU and thought about what I wanted to do with my life, I was working in a school with mm-hmm. at-risk children realizing that while I could make a difference in their individual life, um, the challenges that they faced were so much greater. And if I really wanted to affect the population, then I needed to have greater skills and other tools in my toolbox. So I went to graduate school, um, where I came down here to Washington and got my master's um, at American University in Mm -hmm. psychology. And when I finished my master's, was still t- contemplating what to do next, um, deciding whether or not I should choose a clinical path or continue doing um, some of the research that I had started in graduate school. 
um, started working for some trade associations, doing research, and Rand actually recruited me. So I was working mm -hmm. on a project um, with some colleagues in Santa Monica, and they said, hey, we have a DC office. Um, you know, if you'd like to entertain the opportunity to come to Rand, we certainly would like to benefit from your capabilities. And so I joined in 2000 and have been here ever since um, and really have been fascinated by the opportunity to work in a multidisciplinary environment um, on projects that are complex, um, that uh, really are dealing with pressing issues that face um, us as a nation. And, um, you know, with the idea that if we can come up with some recommendations, we have the opportunity to change policy. That's yeah, nice. We're, so we're sitting here in, in your office, and there are a couple of photos of uh, of you with uh, George W. Bush. And I think it's a, I, I think the your experience and your relationship with uh, with the president um, provides an interesting window and some interest in the insight into the kind of work that you've done while at Rand. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you came to meet um, President Bush and how? Uh, how you came to associate with him eventually. Sure. Well, it's a new relationship, newish relationship, and it's an interesting story, so bear with me for a second. Yes, ma'am. Um, so when I came to RAND, it was 2000, and uh, soon thereafter, um, we ha our nation faced the terrorist attacks of September 11th, and really the environment here changed, both in Washington, D.C., but also here within RAND. We were each challenged by our leadership at that time to think about how our skills and expertise could be used and applied in this new context and trying to help our sponsors address the challenges associated with terrorism and homeland security even before the government was ready to. So as a psychologist, I thought about, um, well, what can I do? Well, I can certainly help understand how people respond to threats and uncertainty and, um, you know, disasters and, and um, other types of events. I'd also been doing some work looking at the potential causes for Gulf War illness. Right. So the first Gulf War and trying to understand some of the predictors for why we had a cohort of uh, service members come home with unexplained physical symptoms. And so I knew a lot about the history of psychological and psychosocial consequences of being deployed. And so once we started deploying our troops into Afghanistan and then into Iraq, uh, we began hearing anecdotal stories about the concerns around post-traumatic stress disorder, um, suicide, and some other issues that were um, affecting the returning troops and the stress it was placing on families. So early in the deployments, we began to start to try to do some work on understanding the mental health impact of these wars. At that time, uh, we were told by several, you know, administrative officials they had it under control. There was nothing really to be worried about, that they weren't seeing big problems, that they weren't concerned about these um, disorders or these conditions. Um, but the newspapers were telling other stories. And so we were able to secure some private funding to launch a very large non-governmental assessment of the size and scope of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and traumatic brain injury among returning troops. This is about the same time that we had the scandal, if you will, at Walter Reed in 2007 mm -hmm. when there oh, were housing yeah. challenges right. facing some of our returning troops who were recovering there. And so it was a time of you know, reflection and understanding of what is the government doing or not doing mm -hmm. to care for its returning wounded warriors. And so we released Invisible Wounds of War, which was a very comprehensive assessment 
of the size and scope of PTSD, TBI, what our nation's systems were to address them, and where we really needed to go to fill the gaps. Mm -hmm. um, that report was met with a lot of interest. Um, there was a huge response from the media, um, a huge response from Congress. We testified several times. Um, but the administration still was uneasy about some of our recommendations and calling attention to it. And so there was pretty big pushback so, at that time. So, so just a question. So what, um, out of curiosity, what was, what was so problematic with some of those recommendations? Why, why was there this unease with what you were recommending with regard to, to the outlook of this problem? Sure. The first, for the first time, we had estimates of the size of the problem that were, you know, significant. You know, we were predicting that one in five of returning service members experienced either PTSD or depression. And so that was a significant number of individuals at that time, about 300,000 individuals in the United States back home. Um, and the number of troops deploying was continuing to grow. Right. So the number that would be exposed to these risks was also growing. We also, for the first time, put an economic cost on mm. the, these disorders. And so we were able to demonstrate that the cost to society were quite significant. We also right. showed that if you can treat these conditions with high-quality interventions, evidence-based approaches, you can save money. But we also demonstrated that we weren't right. um, rendering those evidence-based treatments as often as we should. So we were able to put some frame of reference to right. it, and um, it was a wake-up call, if you will, to the nation on the size and scope of the problem and the amount of investment needed to address it. Right. I, I don't want to deviate too yep. much for the, from the George Bush story. We'll definitely get back to yep. that for, for the sake of our listeners. I know we'll, we'll keep them on the edge of their seat regarding that. But um, I, I do want to ask about what, what factors in these wars um, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan contributed to, to the higher incidence of, of mental illness among the troops and, and uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, one of the, a couple of things you note, you note in this study are, are longer deployments, um, um, you know, more common redeployments. And so if you can talk about in the context of the history of the U.S. military sure. and the wars that we fought, what about these wars specifically ha has, has made this issue come to the forefront? There are certainly some unique characteristics associated with these wars, but it's very difficult to make those comparisons because our methods and approaches for determining mm, these problems right. have shifted over time. Mm -hmm, and right. so historically, we weren't necessarily assessing for exposures to traumatic brain injury. And now our diagnostic tools and our therapeutic responses for PTSD are quite different than they were. So it's really hard to make comparison statistically to like the rates of PTSD today versus Vietnam. Mm -hmm. But some of the unique characteristics certainly we've shown, shown in analyses really are predicting the um, outcomes that we observe in terms of PTSD and depression. And that really is the number of combat exposures. And so, you know, you can have, for example, a short deployment that includes a number of, com you know, combat-related exposures, seeing um, dead or injured combatants, smelling, you know, dead bodies, engaging in enemy fire, um, having a friend or loved one who was killed. The accumulation of those um, dramatically increases your risk for experiencing PTSD or depression. Mm -hmm. um, that can happen in a short amount of time or it can happen over a longer period of time. So while these wars have been characterized by multiple deployments, long deployments that in some cases have been extended um, unexpectedly, what we find is it's really the number of combat exposures that an individual has while they're deployed um, that predicts those rates of right. PTSD and depression. 
And because, like, when we were talking to uh, to, to Mr. Adesado about the problem, we talked about the fact that, that war is this unique situation where you can't catalog exactly, you know, what's what's happening to you at all times. You can't ca- catalog the amount of influences uh, and, and these sorts of uh, in exposures that you have, right? right. And so... so um, the, the length of deployments and, and redeployments, the number of redeployments, is the best proxy to estimate that? Well, right. it has been a proxy for studies that haven't measured these combat exposures. Okay. And so some studies that have measured the individual experience can show that the relationship is with those individual exposures. It is. Okay. But many studies don't assess those. Um, for example, our friends in the UK don't necessarily assess those traumatic exposures while you're in theater. They just have proxies for length of time that you were there um, and the amount of times that you went. And certainly your exposure to those events is mm-hmm. dependent upon, well, how much time are you there and um, how many times have you gone. The more times you go and the longer you're there, the higher your potential risk for being exposed to these types of occurrences and right. events. So there is a relationship, but you know when we isolate it in multivariate analyses, it becomes the actual exposure well, to so the traumatic we'll event. S- well, so to ask you a little bit about your methods and how yeah. they've evolved, is it... If I'm understanding some of what you're what, what you set up until now correctly, um, your study really innovated in terms of the kind of the kind of analyses and the kind of variables it considered with regard to mental health outcomes specifically. Is am I correct in understanding that? Somewhat. So the field has really evolved, and so we took advantage of the best state of the art um, screening techniques mm-hmm. that were available at the time that we did the study. Right. And so the innovative aspect of our um, study at the time was that we took a broad representative sample and were able to get population level estimates. Um, But we did include a lot of information that uh, we could look at predictors and moderators, if you will, that other studies haven't. Um, I don't, you know, some had, but some hadn't. Um, We were just using the best state-of-the-art methods at the time, which have evolved quite a bit um, from, you know, uh, Vietnam era, or even right. the first Gulf War. And so, have you seen an evolution also since this is this is a long-standing conflict, and mm-hmm. we've been involved for for a very long time at this stage? Have you also seen an evolution just in terms of this conflict specifically, and your in some of the data that you've generated? Well, we've seen an evolution in a number of different ways. Not only in the types of exposures and and things that we're trying to assess that service members have experienced while they've been deployed, but we've seen the Department of Defense change its mm-hmm. own screening approaches. So they conduct surveillance um, studies of troops as they come home. And so based upon, um, you know, concerns that either PTSD could be delayed onset or there were concerns about whether or not there were incentives or disincentives from being truthful on those questionnaires, they implemented a second round of screening um, called the post-deployment health reassessment, which was meant to be implemented at least 90 days after someone returned, again, to try to catch some of these issues at least 90 days after folks have been home. And what they showed is that when you do that, you do now start to catch Um, more problems uh, or more concerns that need to be followed up with additional clinical assessments. So we've seen some additional changes. We've also seen additional changes to how we look at traumatic brain injury in particular. So historically we rely upon the service member to raise his hand or her hand to say, hey, I think I, you know, was exposed and may have had a brain injury. So unless they were knocked out, um, it was really up to them to kind of come forward to say, I think I might have gotten a concussion. Well, there's not a lot of incentive to do that in a right. deployed environment. So um, now they've changed to what they call event-based 
um, assessment. So if a unit is exposed to a blast or a unit um, has uh, something, an incident happen where a TBI could result, the whole unit is assessed and the whole unit gets a series of screening questions um, to try to identify if anybody is um, struggling or is challenged uh, because if they can do some early intervention, which becomes secondary prevention, they can perhaps stave off some of the later problems. So we have seen a lot of changes in the 15 years yeah, that we've been um, at war, right. for sure. I, I want to <coughs> zoom in on, on TBI real quick just because I, I know um, a lot of people are familiar with, with PTSD, particularly throughout the course of the 20th century coming out of Vietnam. There's a lot of cultural awareness of it. I don't think there's as much awareness of, of TBI. Right. And um, I, I'm really curious as to what the, the uh, side effects of TBI are the, or the symptoms of TBI are mm -hmm. after a war. Um, and and just, to, just to throw some numbers out to, um, to, to indicate scale here, um, if you extrapolate the numbers from your study, which was like a population of... Uh, about 2,000, 1,965. Yep. Um, if you extrapolate those numbers out, it's, it's 300,000 soldiers uh, coming home with PTSD, uh, 320,000 coming back with uh, with TBI, and that's in 2008. So that's that's halfway yeah. halfway through the course of this. That war. is. That's based yeah. upon a denominator, if you will, of 1.7 million. We're now yeah. at 2.8 million uh, individuals yeah. who've been um, deployed to these uh, conflicts. And so it's not a perfect extrapolation mm -hmm. to take those rates, which we identified, I think it was 18.5% for either PTSD or depression, and 19% for probable traumatic brain injury. So it's not perfect to take right. those um, same rates and apply them to that new denominator. But what we've seen now is the official diagnostic um, count, if you will, of traumatic brain injury among service members is that it's roughly about 360,000 individuals who've been diagnosed. Now, the majority of those, uh, some of them have been diagnosed um, not in deployed environments, but actually here at home, training accidents, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, are mild TBI. Mild TBI is, a is really a concussion. And mm -hmm. so in the United States, we've had greater awareness of concussion and concussive events. Certainly, we see that playing out in youth sports and in professional mm -hmm. sports, right. all the concerns in the NFL right now. Um, and as we've understood kind of the environmental exposures that happen to um, our servicemen and women while they're in theater, um, you know, we know that their bodies, um, including their heads, are getting, you know, unfortunately concussed and bounced around. Um, we've seen responses in terms of better body armor, better helmets, um, better tanks in terms of what we can do to prevent um, these events from being so damaging. Um, but with the IED and the improvised explosive device, it really kind of changed the nature of these exposures early on. Um, and so, anyway. If I can interject, yeah. sorry, real quick with, with this better technology, I'm curious, is there, um, is, the, is the, the military willing to put soldiers in situations, or, or are there, there are situations where we, we assume we can put soldiers in more dangerous situations because the technology and the armor is better, and then that's putting them in situations where they, they contract brain injuries because, because of some sort of explosive? 
I don't know that I can answer that um, directly. I do know that our national security posture requires that we have a force that we are willing to deploy, which means that we are always going to be um, willing to expose our servicemen and women to some risk okay. on behalf of the defense of the nation. Right. But I think over time and as technology advances and as our ability to um, create equipment um, that can protect against some of those risks that they will face, whether or not we move to the use of drones, whether or not we use you know, unar you know, unmanned um, uh, other types of weapon systems, certainly I think those are being built um, in the hopes that it can minimize the risk to mm -hmm. human um, life. Um, but we are always likely going to be exposing our men and women in uniform to harmful, risky situations, whether it be from the types of environmental exposures that they will face in, in the situations that they deploy to or um, because of some of the other kind of weaponry that is used in war, um, whether that be biological, chemical. Certainly we've seen concerns about that with the first Gulf War and the early parts of these conflicts. Um, you know, we've developed immunizations and preventive approaches for some of those um, potential exposures. Um, and now, you know, we're trying to catch up and make sure that we can also protect against some of these concussive Mm -hmm. um, type events. So, so some of so with with PTSD and and, and TBI, uh, the question becomes after 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 these incidents yeah. occur yeah. and and these consequences are identified and diagnosed, how how do we deal with them and yeah. what are the repercussions? I think I think it's it's pretty widely known at this stage that there is a serious issue with suicide mm -hmm. in in veterans and. Um, I'm wondering, from your perspective, as somebody who actually was able to identify some of the underlying causes of that unfortunate outcome, how do you perceive, item one, our response, and how do you perceive uh, the evolution towards newer, better, more effective solutions sure. to address the problem? Sure. Well, um, I'm going to unpack that for a second. So we continue to recommend um, as a response to the concerns about post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and other mental health conditions and suicide risk among service members and veterans to increase access to high quality mental health care. Evidence-based approaches do work and so if we can make sure that we can get individuals at risk with these conditions into that high quality care we have a greater likelihood of um, their recovery and um, saving their lives. And so that's still critically, critically important. Um, for traumatic brain injury, we're still learning a lot about how best to um, intervene and treat for some of the repercussions and the post-concussive um, symptoms. Um, and so as uh, the field develops, we are learning to deploy kind of multimodal, kind of holistic, integrative approaches to treat headache, to treat sleep problems, um, to help with some of the brain functioning, some of the balance and vestibular issues. And so that field is really still growing and exploding, and we need to accelerate that. So you've seen over the past decade hundreds of millions of dollars being invested into the development of new techniques and evaluation, and then now deploying them. Um, very widely in the communities um, that you know treat uh, veterans, but thinking holistically in an integrated way. Um, so while high quality treatment um, is a very very critical path, 
we also have to think about how can we do better screening, how can we create better surveillance, better ways to catch individuals who may be at risk and get them on the right path, um, whether or not these, it's a, the use of gatekeepers, for example, mm-hmm. people that are trained to recognize the signs of distress, it's more of a population level approach. Um, and then, you know, just identifying individuals early. And then we hear a lot about um, means restriction. And so policies that can be implemented that perhaps um, increase the safety of an individual who may be at risk for um, committing suicide or, um, you know, attempting suicide. And so safety around the use of opioids, safety around the use of guns. Um, you know, so thinking about safety issues around the means that one could use um, in, um, in taking their lives. And so those policy interventions are also critically important while we're also trying to get people into evidence-based mental health treatment. So, I mean, there's an obvious moral case for taking care of these veterans who are suffering these invisible wounds, but, you know, as, as we all know, sometimes getting through Washington requires more than morality more than morality yeah it requires uh, requires you know um, um, lengthy and detailed congressional mm-hmm. testimony regarding mm-hmm. the you know cost benefit analysis and so mm-hmm. could you take us through the cost benefit cost benefit analysis you did yeah. um, in regard to this issue in in this study sure that was one of the only requirements that our sponsor had given us at the time that they commissioned this study was that they wanted to be able to put an economic dollar amount mm-hmm. on the size and scope of these conditions and so we, we were able to estimate, based upon, um, you know, the literature about the economic impacts of PTSD, the economic impact of depression, um, the costs associated with having PTSD or depression post-deployment. And um, we were also then able, and so you just basically build in these assumptions into a micro-simulation model. I'm not the health economist who ran this, but um, I did have a super powerhouse team of economists working on this, and they literally stayed up overnight to continue to run these models, which you run several different micro-simulation models, and then you try to see how they converge. Um, and you, you know, parameters around your estimates, et cetera. We vetted all the assumptions that we made with clinical experts around the country, and so we ran these economic models to come up with the cost of $6.2 um, billion for a two-year post-deployment cost of PTSD mm-hmm. and depression. And so that included the cost associated with providing treatment. Mm-hmm. It included the cost associated um, with the uh, lost productivity so mm-hmm. that we know if you have PTSD, if you have depression, you, you have, we see increases in absenteeism and lower productivity. So there's costs associated with that, often borne by employers. There's also the cost of lives lost lives lost to suicide. And so economists um, have put an estimate on the cost of a lost life. And so those costs together became the costs. And then you simulate if you can change the um, assumptions. So those costs were based upon the number that we expected to get care and the number expected to get high quality care Mm -hmm. based upon the literature that we had in the United States at that time. Again, this was about mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. And then you change those assumptions, and we assume that we can get a higher percentage of people into care, mm-hmm. um, and then change the percentage of people who get high-quality care. And so when we changed it to the max, 100% get care, 100% get evidence-based care, you're changing, you're reducing the number of lives lost to suicide, you're reducing the costs of lower productivity, mm-hmm. and you're promoting longer-term recovery and future health care use. 
So we saw the cost be reduced by $2 billion just in two years. So we were starting to build the economic case for having to make sure right. that you could, if you could get 100% of returning service members right. into care, high quality care for PTSD and depression, we would save the nation $2 billion. What, what, what are the factors, what are some of those factors that are, that are keeping us from, from increasing that percentage? Um, yeah. I know, I know one of the things you noted was, was the fear yes. um, of not being able to, to be employed uh, either in the military again at higher ranks yeah. or, or in civilian life. Right. We continue to work on these barriers to care. And so um, this is the biggest challenge, I think, mm -hmm. is not only did we talk about how you expand capacity of the system. So mm -hmm. we need a system that is equipped to be able to render this evidence-based care no matter where the veteran seeks that care. Mm -hmm. And we have a long way to go in the nation yeah. before we get there. But we also have to then make sure once we have a system that can do this, we get service members, veterans into that system. Mm -hmm. So overcoming those barriers. Often we hear in the civilian setting that that barrier can be finding a provider or right. paying for treatment. Well, in the military and in the veteran setting, you know, the VA and the military treatment facilities exist. They don't necessarily cost anything, and their providers... Um, available. So getting uh, the veteran into that care, um, overcoming some of those barriers, it's not about finding a provider or paying for it, it's these other types of concerns. Concerns about the career repercussion, mm -hmm. that their leadership may find out and think differently about them and, and make changes to the assignments that they give them. Think about it. If you were in a civilian setting and getting mental health care, your boss doesn't necessarily know. Right. But in the military context, they would, because you have to either ask for time off or somehow go through the chain of command to get um, into the system. Um, for the security clearance is a big concern for service members and veterans because at that time on the security clearance application, there's a question, it was question 21, you know, are you getting mental health counseling? And so there is this perception that if you checked yes, you'd be denied a security clearance. Um, so they changed the security uh, application, security clearance application, about six weeks after our report came out. And they allowed service members to now check no. So if it's, it, the question was rephrased to say that if, you know, are you getting mental health counseling? And you're allowed to check no if that mental health counseling is for a marital problem or a combat or a deployment related mental mm. health concern. So it kind of gave service members the permission to say no, but it was, it's still unclear in the population then, well, what does it mean in follow-up? Because with right. well, why are they asking me? Yeah. Well, right. So our yeah. recommendation at the time was that um, certainly this was a barrier, but we needed to examine other mechanisms and methods for determining whether or not someone was fit for duty and appropriate for security clearance that didn't hinge on this one concept of they're getting mental health care, because that doesn't tell you anything. Right. Um, you know, someone getting mental health care actually is taking care of themselves, right. and that is a sign of strength and positivity that they're investing in their own um, well-being, and so that doesn't necessarily tell you that they're not able to do their job. So our recommendation was about coming up with better techniques and policies, um, and so far this continues to be a really, really vexing issue for the veteran community to try and disentangle those concerns around the career impact. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I understand also that there's there's a supply demand issue in mm -hmm. terms of uh, service providers just because yes. there's a dearth of practitioners. Um, I I 
I, just to just to, to recenter on the on the George Bush yes. narrative because I think I, I think it's I think it's really interesting how your relationship and yeah. his perception of your work evolved over time. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. So again, you know, we've been talking a lot about what happened in the mid two thousands, mm-hmm. and at that time, you know, there was certainly still this sense that um, you know we had it under control. We can respond. But as you saw Congress respond with um, increases in funding and demands upon DOD and the VA to increase their hiring, increase the research, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars starting to now flow into these systems to increase capacity and address these challenges. At the same time, we saw the private sector really start to surge in its investments in creating programs in the um, non-governmental sector to absorb some of the need and to address it as well. And so lots of private philanthropy starting new and um, greater programs. This was also about the time of the change of administration. And Mm -hmm. so in 2008, um, we had a change of administration and a change in leadership in the White House. You know, now we had um, the the president uh, put out in 2000, I think it was 2010, strengthening military families. There was a new focus and what we needed to do to invest in supporting military families and veterans as they transitioned. We saw the implementation of the Joining Forces Initiative. Um, And so just by the change of the administration, um, almost immediately we began seeing the Department of Defense leadership now call it the invisible wounds of Mm -hmm. war, whereas Mm -hmm. previously they didn't name it, they didn't necessarily talk about it. In fact, we were asked to retract our findings um, because they were concerned that we were calling too much attention to it. Um, So, you know, we saw this shift in kind of how the nation was going to try to support um, the veterans and their families. Um, At the same time, you know, as as President Bush transitioned to his post-presidency career and they started the Institute, they were beginning to formulate what their initiatives were going to be. And when they launched the George W. Bush Institute as part of the Presidential Center, one of the initiatives that he implemented was the Military Service Initiative with a strong commitment on trying to foster a successful transition for service members into veteran status, getting them a job, getting them reconnected into their communities. And as he did that, he started, um, for example, a golf tournament. Um, And as he began interacting with more and more of the service members, and again, I'm telling this third hand from reading about what um, was going on at the time, Um, he began to realize that many of them were struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. They began opening up to him that they were really challenged by these things. And he was struck that it took them to open up to their former commander-in-chief to finally start talking about some of these issues. So he directed his team to start to learn more about that. And I was contacted very early on um, by the leadership at the George Bush Institute to help them understand more about the invisible wounds of war. Um, they got to read the books, they got to read our reports, we spent a lot of time helping them think about um, how the findings would be relevant today and what was happening in the landscape. And um, within two years time I was invited um, through my here at the RAND Corporation mm-hmm. um, through a contract relationship to serve as a military, as a, I guess I'm called a military fellow or a senior (laughs) fellow or something, um, or a fellow in the uh, military service initiative. And so with them have been one of the um, advisors on the invisible wounds of war, helping them to shape what they have 
implemented um, from his initiative. And, you know, through that, they've led the symposium at the 2016 Invictus Games with Prince Harry, where it was a whole long, a whole day long um, focus on addressing the invisible wounds of war, where we talked about it as a problem. There were 14 nations from across the globe there to talk about this with, with a big international um, focus. Prince Harry spoke about his experience being deployed. Um, we saw some of the competitors uh, share their own experience uh, addressing their invisible wounds of war, TBI, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a focus on you know how the community could work together to address some of the remaining gaps. So that was in 2016. We've continued that work. Um, he just hosted a stand two here in Washington to kind of bring the community together with the new administration to continue to focus on addressing some of these gaps. And his institute just announced what's called the Warrior Wellness Alliance, which is an alliance of service providers in the non-governmental sector with the VA to continue to work together on these topics. So he has indicated very strongly that this is a priority focus area for him and his wife, Laura, um, that they will continue to do what they can do to bring leadership and voice and support to addressing um, the needs of our veterans who continue to struggle with the invisible wounds of war. Right, I, th I think you have a phone call, unfortunately, <laughs> so we're, we're, we have to let you go, but we, we just want to thank you for taking the time and for hosting yeah. us here and for being so willing to explain in, in great detail what exactly uh, what exactly you've been doing here at Rand Corp, and we want to thank you for your work as well. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity.